Hello, and welcome to episode three of the Black Plat podcast. I'm Dr. Jack, founder of Nubian Jack, the community trust that creates plaques, memorials, statues, and other products to make black history known in Britain. As part of our Black Plat project, we've put up 30 plaques in London to celebrate the stories of black historical figures. In this original podcast series, I'll be speaking to black men and women who are inspiring, creative, aspiring, and influential individuals as we discuss their chosen historical figures and who they feel should be part of the Black Plaque Project. You must have felt mad, lonely and confused. And I think you probably got to that space and thought, right, I'm great at sport. I've got all of this money and you're still not accepting me. And it's unfortunate. And I feel it's, it's a really, really sad story. It's heartbreaking because he also didn't really have family at the time. For more info on our community trust, visit newbeandjack.org. For more on the Black Plaque Project, visit blackplaqueproject.com. In this penultimate episode, I'll be talking to Kevin Morosky, a creative and founder of We Are Poc. We will discuss his chosen figure for the Black Plaque Project, the first openly gay footballer, Justin Fashionu. I start my conversation with Kevin by asking him about being black and British in London. I think with any black person, there's a lot of time spent unlearning the things that society have, has tried to like impose upon you and like who you are, uh, what your options are, what you're allowed to do, what it is to be black, what it isn't to be black and all of these things. So I think a lot of time for most black and brown people and other ethnic minorities is you spend probably your first 20 plus years unlearning all of those things and actually just getting back to the roots the root of who you really are, who you were born to be, right? So, as I said at the beginning, I made a joke and was like, haha, I'm from Croydon, I know how to fight. But actually, that's me contending with the trauma that I had to go through growing up in Croydon. So, there were lots of fights, there were lots of knives pulled on me, like I have been stabbed, all of these things. And it shouldn't have been that way, because although it sounds quite horrible, but I can't lie, I'm really good with violence, but that's that's from a space of survival. And actually, I'm just a homebody. Like I don't really want I don't want any drama with anyone. I'm more than happy to help you with anything that you need. I'm happy to support, try new things, uh, make mistakes, uh, cry, all of these things. But mm. yeah, I think in the first couple of years, specifically via um, society. Mm. I wasn't afforded those things. Now at home, in terms of like my family, the support, yeah, for sure. You know, I was loved, I was protected. I was the first grandchild of, I've lost count now. I think we're up to nearly like 32. So it's all of these things of a big family and it's all great. But yeah. outside of that, not at all. And especially just being in Croydon, I think yeah. at fifth, it was like 15, 16. I, I didn't really come out as gay, but I was just like, it was either, I, I, I didn't have a choice between like, contending with being black or contending with being gay I was busy being black I didn't have time for the dramas of like I'm coming out it was just like this is the thing yeah Um, luckily luckily by then as I said I learned how to fight so anyone who had a problem it was a wrap very quickly and we moved on when you said you having to defend yourself I wanted to unpack whether that was cultural issues within your own community or if it was racial both both not necessarily from my family but both. It definitely was cultural in terms of uh, my first job was like in McDonald's 
Uh, so was mine, by the way. Was it? Yes, Kensington High Street, but a long time ago. Wow. And I was, uh, I don't know if I'm going to get stuck for this, but I was a little bit younger because at the time, uh, money, you know, money wasn't about in those days. And I was beefing with my mum and I clocked like, right, actually, if I have my own money, that's less stress on her. And then like, I can do my own thing. And like, it gives me freedom. Just being there and in that space, like... There were so many kind of um, just altercations based on race, based on sexuality, based on race and sexuality, uh, based on class. And especially in the place that I was working in, there's a perception, right? You go in and you think that people work in that particular place because they failed at life. When actually everyone that I worked with was either on their second degree, first degree, it was flexible. The money was quick. You got paid every two weeks. So it was just like a smart place to be if like you needed something that could move as you needed to in terms of your education. A side point of view wasn't that at all. So people would come in and like look look down on you. I understand. It's very interesting. I mean, nowadays you can take a degree in the vocation that you were working in. So it's interesting how things have changed. So this project, why is this project important to you? I think that um, we're in an interesting time, right? Where I think we're actually slowing down and looking at all of the injuries that we've suffered and pointing them out and trying to heal them. Because all we've really ever done as a culture and across any marginalized culture is like move on from battle to battle to battle to battle to battle. And I think what this podcast does, what your work um, allows people to do is to stop a minute and be like, right, that's why this happened. That's connected to this. That is traumatic actually. And then you start to like pick up on the patterns, you start to uh, look at a new way of um, healing, a new way of moving forward, a new way of being positive. So conversations like this to me are, are, are really important because if you don't know where you've been, you really don't know where, where you're going. Right. So your chosen person to discuss was is Justin Fashion. I'm old enough, but I do remember him playing, actually, uh, and watching him. So I know quite a lot about Justin Fashion. He had a great impact on football. But also, of course, he was the first professional footballer to come out as gay. Tell us a little bit about him and what he means to you and what impact he had on you. I think, um, I don't know, I think I'd be... Um line if I said like he was a massive hero I wouldn't I wouldn't present it in that way I I think that though his story to me was really pivotal and interesting not just because like he was gay and I'm gay not at all actually that's not the connection it's more around mental health and it's more around what people feel like they can just do to you and get away with and I don't think his story has been delved into enough or, or spoken about enough. I know there was like a recent documentary, I think it came out in 2017. It's not spoken about enough, like the rampant racism with with um, the homophobia. Because when we talk about mental, when we talk about mental health and those kind of things, I think we don't ever take the time to look at it from an intersectional lens. So, I mean, there are a number of reasons perhaps why we don't speak about it as, as much. One of those is to be gay in the black community still has a little bit of a taboo, not as much as before, it must be said. But certainly around the time he came out, it was you know very difficult for him. His story, however, may be suppressed because it involves higher society. What are your thoughts on that? It's Babylon, isn't it? Yeah, I think that um, it's, it's always been that. That's it. Like, he did that famous inter interview 
uh, when he came out and spoke about, well, there were rumours, let's say, flying around that it involved like members of parliament and la di da di da And we've seen that time and time again. As soon as it interrupts that circle, their pot of money, no, 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 can't have this, la, 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 squash it, put it down. You, you, You see it right now, even with the pandemic. If it interrupts their circle and it interrupts that flow of money, like it's a problem, but if if he wasn't calling out anybody in that circle, it'd be fine. Right, they would have right. ran with it and like spoken about it and and all the rest of it. And I also think if he was a white um, footballer as well, if he was white at the time, yeah, it would have been a different. It would have been a completely different thing. Do you honestly believe that? Because there's not many instances of white sports stars, male or female. And there is a famous American soccer star who's uh, come out as being gay. She's a great gay icon, actually. But I don't believe there are many white stars the statistics would suggest that there are a higher proportion of people who are gay playing premiership football today but we don't know of, i mean frankly i can't think of any so would you say that it goes beyond race the issue of homophobia in sport no because uh whatever i do is black so for me to be gay is black uh for me to be into, I don't know, heavy metal is black. Whatever I do is black and whatever you do is black. You can't separate the things. I think back to your point in terms of, is it a race thing or is it not? If you move it over to like another platform, let's take music, for example. On one hand, you have a whole Emanike who is very out and proud. And I think alone has got three songs in the top 10 this week was number one for however long. All of these things, all of these accolades, written all of your favourite bangers. But his prominence, as long as he's kind of behind and like the writer or the producer, there's no support for him, really. Like, he's still doing his thing. He's still great, but there's no support. On the other hand, if you take a Sam Smith, who is equally talented and all the rest of it, it's it's celebration. It's, it's love letter after le- love letter of article and news press and all the rest of it. So... There, there is there is definitely a difference and there's I could go on forever like I could probably find an example in every pocket of pop culture sport music whatever and show you an example of like so-and-so did this and it it flopped and so-and-so did that and it yes. and and it was fine so perhaps that touches the theme on more than on black sexuality more than homophobia and uh, the expression of black sexuality may be seen as a threat in the media what are your thoughts on that I think that we've been over-sexualized from, from when we were kidnapped and, and brought to different parts of the world um, to build cities for free. Yes, we can talk about over-sexualization and separately homophobia, but I think there is a space where those two things come together and that's where it's explosive. In the case of Justin Fashionu, we saw that with when he was in America for that point of time and then got accused of indecent sexual acts, et cetera, et cetera, with a younger person, and which led to um, his suicide. Yes, yeah, an interesting conversation that or constantly takes place, a duality where sex sells. So sometimes, you know, the media use black bodies to uh, sell certain things, whether it be music or whatever. And then on the other hand, it appears to be a threat. It's very interesting to, you know, uh, unpick that and unpack that. As a social worker, that's my background. I'm exploring the notion that black men and black sexuality is a threat. And sometimes, whether subconsciously or consciously, we find a way of not becoming a threat. Again, that is topic worth having. It's not an assumption. 
it's something yeah. that, that you know that does exist and um, 100% it's like a tall person being embarrassed by their height and find themselves stooping or bending i mean that's also quite well known i think that's really important though just to finish that off quickly is that i think there is a real thing with marginalized people right black and brown people duality it's a thing that we only can be only one thing and one thing only and anything outside of that box is depending on who you're talking to the devil or evil or why do you deserve so much or why is why why does he deserve to get paid that much but those same questions wouldn't be asked of their white pairs or counterparts yeah. at all. Yeah. And I yeah. think um, that's a really important kind of talking point that I'd love to have more conversations on it. Okay, let's look back at Justin. So he did have a remarkable career as a footballer, uh, I hasten to add. And I mean, he used to play for Norwich and he burst on the scene. I actually think he uh, eventually played for England as well. He got um, goal of the season. I'm going back into my archives now and my hard drive of my brain to remember that. If I remember rightly, Justin was adopted. He and his brother were adopted. They were brought up by adopted parents. What effect do you think it had been disassociated uh, or disconnected from his parents had in his upbringing, the shaping of his personality? I think it's a really good um, question because I don't think it's spoken about enough. Because if you are yeah. growing up in a racist country, England, as a child, you don't know these things. It's just as you're growing up, you pick up on the microaggressions and the, and the way you're treated differently. Now, if your foster parents or, or adopted parents are white or other and have absolutely no lived experience on how to kind of help you navigate this space, that's definitely going to have um, an effect on you. That isn't actually your fault, but you're just, you will walk around completely blind in situations and put yourself in dangers that you didn't even realise were dangerous. It's a lot. I'm not I'm not out here saying that um, anybody can't adopt anybody. I do think for whatever child you end up being blessed with, and they are not from your cultural background, if you do not share a lived experience with them, I think it's important that you go off and you really immerse yourself uh, in that culture and also create... A cultural circle so then if you've got to expand your 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 friendship and family circles to make sure that that representation is there and those conversations can be had then do that what does it mean for you to be a panelist on this project i think for me it's it's just a little part of healing i don't ever try to get into things or look to do things to fix the whole thing i don't think i have that power and i don't think anyone does have that power i think we just all have to do our little bits and they add up to the bigger thing. So for me, it's like if one person listens to this and feels inspired to go and do a little bit more research on any of, of the discussions, not just this one, great. And then it will lead to another thing and it will lead to another thing. And if Justin was here today, what would you say to him? That um, the way England treated you was disgusting, the way um, the way that the football clubs treated you was disgusting, and that you're enough and that, and that actually you were really talented and that you smashed it in being uh, the first black man to be signed for like a mill. Now there are lots of black players who like your eyes would water if you knew how much money they were being signed for and how much money they earn and the magical things they are doing and that you're worth it and that you're enough, simply. Yeah. You touched on the fact that he was a pioneering footballer, the very first black million pound footballer. Do you think that was a bit of a weight, a burden for him to carry? And how do you think he was feeling personally inside of all the other things going on around him? 
I think um, he must have felt mad, lonely and confused. And I think he probably got to that space and thought, right, well, look, I'm great at sport. I've got all of this money and you're still not accepting me. And it's just, it's it's unfortunate. And I feel it's it's a really, really sad story. It's heartbreaking because he also didn't really have family at the time. As I said, at the time that he came out, the son ran the story and then at the same time, his brother then went to The Voice, the best known like black newspaper with the headline of, he's an outcast of the family. Imagine that. Like, so you've got money in the bank. You're probably one of the best footballers in the country, but equally on the other side of that, yeah, there's like a whole, like your your brother is fully out here campaigning against you. You then You then try to get away from it and you go away and then get caught up in the madness out there. Like, it's horrible. It's horrible. And no, and there's just nobody there. There's no support. And bear in mind, mind you, like, we're, like, we're all kikiing now about mental health and wellness and checking in on each other. That, those kind of conversations, that kind of language in, especially the black community, is a new thing relatively now around them times. Like, no, we didn't talk about mental health. We didn't talk about depression, et cetera, et cetera. It's just like you move on. And there's just something I wanted to pick up with you. You explained that Justin Mayer felt isolated, his, you know, not having the support of his brother. What role do you think the media played in his eventual end, if you like? I think they had a heavy hand. I think they're part to blame in the same way that the media had a heavy hand to play in Diana's death. I think social media... There are good and bad parts of social media, for sure. But I think the good thing about social media is you realise how not alone you are. And when I say lonely for him, I think on one hand it would have been how many people would have locked him off and stopped talking to him and stopped inviting him to things and he's not allowed to do this. And I can only imagine how lonely it would have been in changing rooms and things like that. On the other hand, just from the space of like culture, like... I sit in many different cultures and many different circles. So very, very Jamaican circle, very, very Jamaican and gay circle, very, very gay circle. That Like there are all of these spaces that I fit into um, and I have family in each and every one. Some of them blood and some of them are just found, right? And for him, he didn't even have family. Like imagine like you're in foster care, your brother's like warring with you via another publication like the whole of the country just doesn't actually care yeah. and no one's backing you whatsoever. And then back then, like how are men, whether you're gay, straight or whatever, how are you finding comfort or someone to talk to? And it's not yeah. just about the sexuality of the conversation. It's just about normal yeah. human contact of like, are you all right, bruv? How are you yeah. doing? Let me yeah. just listen to you. Yeah. Like, what do you need? Do you need the hug? Like, do you want to just hang out? Should we yeah. go and watch... Do you know what I mean? Like, none of that really existed for him. Whereas nowadays, you can just go online and like, right, I'm going to try and find the community. Um, And I'm going to try and find my family if you have to find a new family. Me growing up black and gay in Britain, or specifically in Croydon, was a bit of a mad one. Because on one side, like, I had a whole family that was riding for me, you know? There was no disownership. No one batted an eyelid. Absolutely no one cared. My uncles were doing bits in the end. So to be honest, everybody knew who I was and who I was related to. And and if anything was to happen to me, it would yeah. fully be a war. So yeah. in that way, I was quite privileged, right? Yeah. 
I also knew how to fight for myself and I was just loved. And I'd I'd grown up in the culture of understanding where I lived and understanding what London is and who runs London and and all of these things. I don't think he had any of those things. So I can see how painful and and heartbreaking that situation must have been for him. Are there any black LGBT icons that we should also make the public more aware of that we could honour with blue plaques and black plaques in London? M&EK definitely, because I think he really did bring in a wave of influence in terms of like songwriting and production and how if he's not singing on it, he's probably written um, on those things. And I think there's probably a multitude of others, yeah. to be honest. Yeah. From my perspective, I would like to say that we, we are doing that. There's people like Claude McKay, for instance, and we are honouring them because of their achievement, not just because of their sexuality. So, Kevin, I just wanted to ask you, the, the, the fact that Justin Fashioni made worldwide news by becoming Britain's first million-pound black footballer, what impact do you think that had on... Um, black sports stars and black people in England in general? I think uh, it probably had like a great positive effect of like, Rob, maybe I could do that because we've spoken about um, representation that way, right? But I also think at that time, and even now to a certain extent, there is a thing of like, there can only be one of us that does it at a time, which then breeds this energy of like, trying to keep all the things for yourself. And, and the universe, in, in my personal experience and um, point of view, doesn't work like that. Like, the more that we give is more that we get. Uh, the more doors we open, the more doors are open for us. But in the society that we live in, not just in England, but globally, there was a point of view that there isn't enough for everybody, so we all have to go to war. Um, that can have um, quite a negative effect. I'm not saying it wasn't a good thing that he got signed for that amount of money, but, you know, we're not educated enough on those kind of conversations and not just from I'm not talking from a space of like um, schools etc etc I just mean culturally like we're always in survival mode of trying to get this that or the other for the family yeah I think there was a good and 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 a bad effect I think it obviously enabled people to walk into rooms and be like well I've done this too I'm owed this much this is how much I think I'm worth but then equally I think the struggle to get to that point is so hard. You can't, you can almost not blame people when they get to that space and they they don't do much for the culture or they do shut themselves off because they're just trying to protect the little bit of success or money or access that they have. Thank you for listening to the Black Plaque Podcast, part of the Nubian Jack Black Plaque Project. Join us for our final episode where we will be talking to Ron K. Lawal a cultural commentator and founder of Ariatu-PR, who will be talking to me about her chosen black historical figure, activist and feminist, Olive Morris. Oh, she was, an, I'd like to call her an activist that kind of crossed over a lot of boundaries. She was very young when she came across an incident in Brixton involving Clement Gomwalk, a, a Nigerian diplomat. Just wanted to clear something up because there's a bit of a misinformation around that incident. This podcast is part of the Nubian Jack Black Plaque Project. If you want to find out more about these historic figures, visit blackplaqueproject.com. And if you want to find out more about the Trust, visit nubianjack.com. This podcast is produced by Unedited.